0: Hopefully that will register. There we go. Those guy's playing tricks on me in the back. Uh, My name is Mark Farnham, and I teach apologetics at Lancaster Bible College. Uh, This is my fifth year teaching there, and I also oversee the pre-seminary program, which is for really bright students that want to become pastors someday and start learning Greek and Hebrew in college. We call those people eggheads, but uh, they're good guys, and uh, I have some of your students in uh, my classes, Evan Nash is in uh, one of my classes this semester and he's in that program, we're glad to have him. Uh, I live just over in Lancaster, halfway between Lancaster and Leola, and we've lived there for almost five years. At one time I was a senior pastor in New London, Connecticut. Any ex-Navy people here, submariners? Okay, if you're a submariner, you spent time in New London, we were right across the river from the nuclear submarine base there. And I've been teaching uh, apologetics for 10 years, been teaching higher education, training pastors for about 15 years, and I am delighted to be here today. My hope is that today you'll go away encouraged. There's two kinds of apologetics that's being done today the academic kind, where you get a speaker in and they wow you with their intelligence, and you walk away saying, I don't know what that guy said, but he's really smart. This is the other kind of apologetics, where you're completely unimpressed. With my intelligence, and you walk away saying, I can do that. And that's the goal is that you'll hear some things today that will help you if you encounter someone that says, How can you believe in a God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Hopefully, you'll walk away a little bit more equipped this morning. One of the things I've noticed in recent years is because our world has changed so much, many Christians feel ill equipped to address those kinds of issues. And part of the problem is because our culture has changed so much, sometimes as churches we have not responded well, or as individuals we've gotten comfortable in our faith. Maybe you've heard the parable of the life-saving It's one of my favorite stories. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks happen quite often, there once was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought of themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do that work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decorations, and there was a miniature lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving club or life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters They could begin their own life-saving station further down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. When I think about the church in America today, I think about how comfortable we've become. And comfort is not a bad thing. As I get older, I love comfort. I have an easy chair at home. If anybody sits in it when I walk in the room, they're in trouble. I like that comfortable position. But the truth is, God did not save us to just grow up and live spiritually in comfort. He saved us not only to come to know Christ and to become mature, but also to reach out to other people. And the question I have for you today is, do you have the mindset of a club member, or a life-saving station member? Because when we address the issue of the problem of evil and suffering, it is the number one response when people are asked, why don't you believe in God or why aren't you a Christian? It's because the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Are we as Christians prepared to deal with that question? Sometimes we minimize the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Sometimes if if we live comfortably, we, we haven't experienced a whole lot of that. And I would have to say in my own life, growing up on the East Coast here, there's not a whole lot of suffering I've experienced. But when you talk to brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world, listen to what they suffered, you begin to realize, wow, there, there is great suffering as Christians. And then even outside of that, the general suffering in this world. About 150 years ago, there was a Russian novelist who wrote a book, called The Brothers Karamazov. It's like a 1,000 pages long. Uh, You need three months to read it if you have nothing else to do. But it's a very good book. And in the book, there's a man who is struggling with his faith in God. He's wrestling with how can I believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world? And he's talking to his brother in this scene who is trying to hold on to his faith in God. And he tells his brother this story. Let me tell you, dear brother, of a poor child of five, who was subjected to every possible torture by her cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one big bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty. They shut her all night up in the cold and frost of the outhouse. And because she didn't ask to be taken up at night, as though a child of five, sleeping its angelic sound sleep, could be trained to wake and ask, They smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother, her mother who did this. And that mother could sleep hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's being done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand that, friend and brother, you pious and humble novice? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? Without it, I am told, man could not have existed on earth, for he could not have known good and evil. Why should he know that diabolical good and evil when it costs so much? Why the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. Maybe you're here today and you've wrestled with this problem of evil and suffering. You yourself have experienced that, or you know people that have, and it makes you wonder how... How can God be good and allow this kind of stuff? And the truth is, if we as Christians are wrestling with this issue, issue, how much more are those in the world wondering that same thing? So if you have your handouts, I'd like you to take that. And let's talk about how do we answer this problem of evil and suffering. And I'm not giving a strictly theological answer, uh, going through texts of Scripture. I'm trying to help you give an answer to someone else, because there's two different approaches here. We could just spend our time in Scripture and look at the character of God, the sovereignty of God, and that would be very helpful. But when you talk to unbelievers who raise this question, there are certain answers that we can give them that will help them come to know that apart from God, there is no meaning in suffering. And the first thing we have to do is we have to start by examining the assumptions behind the question. Anybody know what this scene is from? Wizard of Oz. Remember at the end of the movie when Dorothy and Toto and... The Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion, they get to the Wizard of Oz, and he's this big scary face on the wall, and he yells at them, says, I'm not going to give you anything, and they're they're upset, and they're terrified, And and what does Toto do? He runs over and pulls the curtain aside to reveal that the Wizard of Oz is just a little old man pushing buttons and pulling levers. In other words, he's nothing to be afraid of, and when we look at this question of how can we have a good God in a world of evil and suffering, let's take a look at some of the assumptions behind that. But notice in your handout the explanation of the standard atheist argument against God. This has been around for several hundred years where people have asked, how can there be a good, all-powerful, loving God when there's evil in the world? And the argument goes this way. If there is a loving God, he would want to solve the problem of evil. If there was an all-powerful God, he would have the ability to prevent evil. Therefore, if there was an all-loving, all-powerful God, there'd be no evil in the world. But there is evil, therefore there is no loving, all-powerful God. And the truth is many people are convinced by this argument. Many people are swayed to say it's either God or the kind of world that we live in. So let's take a look at some of the assumptions behind that statement. First of all, it assumes that suffering is necessarily bad. There's an assumption there that suffering is a bad thing. Now, in some ways, it is definitely bad in that it is a sign of the curse on this world. Remember when God makes Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden. It's a perfect world where there is no suffering, no sin, no death. But because of their sin, they ruin that world. And we now live in a world where there is suffering, there is brokenness, there is a curse. But this question assumes suffering is bad. As I often say, if you follow an evolutionary worldview, suffering is the way the world works. It shouldn't bother us at all. And yet for all people, intuitively, there's something not right about that. Notice, secondly, it assumes that suffering is somehow unfair, that we don't deserve suffering. We we have to address that with people when they raise that question because the Bible says we do deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Thirdly, it assumes that evil and suffering cannot result in good that makes them worthwhile. That is, any kind of suffering is only an entirely bad, no good can come from it. That's an assumption I think we should definitely challenge. Think about how many of you enjoy watching the Olympics? Anyone? Olympics are coming up next summer. Uh, I enjoy, is it next summer? Okay, sometime soon. I enjoy watching the Olympics, especially the swimming. Back when Michael Phelps began to win gold medals, they did an interview and asked him about, you know, what does it take to become the best swimmer in the world? And he talked about spending six to seven hours in the pool six days a week. Talked about having to eat 20,000 calories a day. Now, I like that part. That part sounds like fun, especially if I'm going to Shady Maple. I can accomplish that in one meal. But when you think about having to spend time in a pool, swimming hundreds and hundreds of laps every day, six hours a day, six days a week, for years on end, we realize there's some benefit to that kind of suffering because it produces something good in the end. Fourthly, there's an assumption that there's a distinction between good and evil. In other words, when someone says, how can there be a God when there's so much evil in the world, they often think that there's only one or one of those two, either God or God. Or a world containing evil. But if you assume evil, you must assume God. Because there must become some kind of a standard. I'm flying through these notes though. So if you're taking notes, just keep writing as fast as you can. There's a standard by which to judge good and evil. That is, is there some way for me to tell the difference between kissing someone and killing them? What is that standard? Where does it come from? And the truth is, because we're made in the image of God, we have a basic moral framework. We understand that some things are definitely right and other things definitely wrong. But where does that come from if there is no God? I spent a lot of time reading evolutionary atheistic literature. And they will tell you over and over again that they believe that we are just the sum total of our DNA. You do what you do. You like what you like. You hate what you hate purely because you are programmed by your DNA. And there is no real you. There is no soul. You're just the sum total of your genetic code. Well, if that's the case, how could we ever say that something is wrong? If someone turns out to be a a serial killer, a mass murderer, isn't that just the programming of their genetic code? How could they be held responsible for that? And yet we intuitively say, no, that that can't be. There's got to be something different because we know deep down inside that that cannot be the only explanation for our behavior. It also assumes that there's a standard or that this standard can be known and ought to compel people. One of my friends is a skeptic. He's the co-founder of the Pennsylvania Skeptics Conference, which is going on this weekend in Philadelphia. And I asked him, I said, what, what guides your morals? He said, empathy. We should all show empathy. I said, empathy, that's it, just empathy. Yep, empathy is what should guide all of our actions. And I said, why? If there is no guide, God, why not aggression? Why not cruelty? Because that will get you far, won't it? And if, if I think that's what ought to guide the world, I'm hoping all of you will hope for empathy and kindness and gentleness. That'll just make my job all the easier, right? But if there is no God, there's no one that can say we ought to do this rather than that. And notice this question that assumes that God cannot exist in a world of evil and suffering, assumes that there's some kind of a standard which tells us the difference between right and wrong. And then finally, it assumes that there is meaning to events in the world and to suffering. That is, the things you and I encounter have a purpose, have a meaning. I mean, isn't that the basic human response when something goes wrong? Why God? Or why me? When you read the Psalms over and over and over again, the psalmist David and Asaph and others, when things go wrong, they say, Why, Lord, why do you let the wicked prosper? Why do you let the righteous suffer? Because there's this general understanding that if there's a God, then there should be some kind of meaning in the suffering. Have you ever wrestled with that question? Why, God? Why did you allow me to get into this car accident? Why did you allow me to be born this way? Why did you allow me to lose that loved one? Why have you allowed me to lose job after job? or suffer rejection. We assume, because we're made in the image of God, that there must be some kind of reason behind it. And that actually points to a God who has made us in his image. Notice here some uh, non-Christian answers to this question. Some would say uh, evil and suffering are nothing more than an illusion. In some of the Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, they would say that your suffering is just an illusion. It's not real. Therefore, when you think that you're hurting or then when you think that you're sad, you need to overcome that by denying that feeling and just pretend like it doesn't happen. I always want to say that. Would you just put your thumb there just for a second? Just hold your thumb. I'm going to grab my hammer here. So tell me again, suffering is an illusion, right? Okay. One, two. Why? Because you know when you experience pain, there is no illusion about it. And yet some would say the only way we can deal with pain and evil is simply to deny its existence. Others would argue for the weakness of God view. That is, God cannot overcome evil. He doesn't overcome it because he cannot. God is limited and God, you know, he, he might have created the world, but maybe he's really tired since then or he just can't interfere and he can't help us out. Some people find this to be a comforting explanation to this. I don't find this comforting at all. It'd be kind of like, you know, if you're in the presence of your dad as a little kid and someone comes along and threatens you, and your dad says, hey, kid, I'd like to help, but that guy's stronger than me, so you're on your own. You know, we would hope that whether our dad is physically strong or not, that he's going to throw himself in the way of any kind of a harm. But some people would say, no, God is, God's not able to help us. Not very satisfying. Others would argue this, is that God cannot interfere with man's free will. Listen, God would love to help stop the evil of Hitler or ISIS, but he's not about to interfere with what man wants to do. I don't find comfort in this either. And I really don't find that in Scripture because over and over and over again, God interferes with people's free will by bringing judgment or even, we're told, saving us. The Bible says no one seeks God. It takes God's initiative to open our eyes, to see the need for Christ, to recognize we're sinners, because otherwise we will not come to God on our own. Salvation is not me coming to God, it's God making me realize that I am desperately in need of him. And then there's the last one, the Christian fatalism. Some people would say, listen, suffering's going to happen, don't let it upset you. Actually, it's a blessing, It's nothing to cry over. Now, I've heard people say this, and they're well-meaning. They're basically trying, it's kind of a distorted view of sovereignty of God. Well, there's nothing you can do about it, so don't cry. But this is not a Christian response. This is what we call stoicism. It's actually from Greek philosophy. The stoics were people that tried to always be even-keeled, never get excited, never get discouraged or depressed, just straight stoicism. I think I was taught a little bit of this growing up in the church, where I was taught the way to handle your emotions is just to kill all your emotions and just maintain this even keel, and yet we don't see that in Scripture at all. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11 for just a moment. I want you to see Jesus and his response to his friend Lazarus when he dies, and to Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. You know the story, Lazarus dies. They send a message before he dies saying, Lord, come help us. Our brother is sick. And we're told that uh, Jesus stays where he is for a few more days. Lazarus dies and Jesus shows up on the fourth day. And he comes and what is he about to do? Do you remember? This is one, I don't know if Pastor Keith does this, but you can actually shout out answers when I'm talking. What What is Jesus about to do to Lazarus? Raise him from the dead. So Jesus comes into town and notice Martha goes out to meet him. Verse 17. Now Jesus came. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus. I want you to notice in this passage. Martha and Mary say the same exact things. But Jesus responds differently to them. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Notice in this response, and this is important. When you're talking to someone who is an unbeliever, who does not believe in God because of evil and suffering, we have to take the time to listen to their story, not to jump to give them an answer, to show empathy, to show concern, to express condolences. But here Jesus notices Martha needs a ministry of truth. He needs... He needs to correct her theology because she's thinking, I'm so brokenhearted, I lost my brother. I know he's going to rise in the resurrection. And Jesus comes along and says, Martha, I am the one who raises people from the dead. I am the resurrection. Your hope is set in a future date, but your hope ought to be set in me. He's giving her a ministry of truth. Right after this, word gets out to Mary, who's back in the house mourning her brother's loss. And they're told her, the master calls for you. She comes out and she says the same exact words to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And notice Jesus' response here. For Martha, he gave a ministry of truth. For Mary, it is a ministry of tears. It says in verse 32, when now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That word deeply moved is fascinating because it also happens in verse 38. It means to cry out or to bellow in anger. Something like this. Now, why did Jesus do that? We don't often picture Jesus doing that kind of thing. Why does Jesus do that? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, isn't he? I would think Jesus would stroll into town saying, don't worry, everybody. I'm here. Got it under control. Everybody just stop crying. I'm about to raise Lazarus dead. Shabam! And just, you know, lightning bolt, uh, you know, the stone rolls away, Lazarus comes out. But Jesus, who's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, comes in sensitive to the grief that Mary's experiencing and he bellows in anger. I think he's bellowing in anger at the curse of sin that lies in this world, the genuine tragedy that happens, the sadness that we experience in this kind of life. He bellows in anger, and then notice what happens. He was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. I had a student tell me recently that his Favorite verse in the Bible was Jesus wept. So I laughed. I said, yeah, I get it. Easiest verse to memorize. But he said, no, I'm serious. When I think about the fact that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he took the time to cry, to weep, to mourn over his friend and the grief that his sisters was experiencing, he said, that helps me understand God's heart for me in such a great way. So for Mary, Jesus comes along, and he expresses grief. If that's Jesus' response to tragedy, loss, evil and suffering in this world, we can't have this view, that can't be biblical. It can't be all about just restraining our emotions and not being in touch with them. Rather, we ought to embrace our emotions, be spirit controlled in them, but to express them in a genuine and heartfelt way. So what does that mean? What what kind of answers can we give as Christians? First of all, we would say God is the standard for his own actions. That is, we don't hold God up to some standard like justice and say, God, you're not good enough. God is the standard. He is the uh, the fountain of all his actions. Secondly, God does not need to defend his actions to us. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with crying out, God, why? Why, God, why do you allow this? It was a little over 11 years ago that um, my parents divorced. My mom moved down here to Pennsylvania to the Philadelphia area where we were living. And uh, she was deeply involved with in the lives of my kids and my nephews and niece. And uh, she was a very active grandmother. She moved down to be near her. She was with us for seven months. We were so excited that that was happening, that she was living in town with us. And one day I was taking my kids hiking, uh, my kids and my nephews hiking, and my mom was on her way to pick up my wife to go shopping. And right as we were about to walk into the woods, I get a phone call from my wife. She said, Mark, your mom's been in an accident. You've got to come right away. So we got the kids in the car, drove as fast as I could to the fire station near our house, got there just as they were loading my mom on a helicopter to bring her down to the University of Pennsylvania. She looked fine. She was unconscious, but there was no obvious trauma, no blood. They flew her down to the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, and we waited for seven hours while they performed emergency brain surgery. She'd been crossing a street near our house to pick up my wife and plowed into by a work truck right in her driver's side window. She lived five days and we had to make the really difficult decision to remove her from life support when they said there's no brain activity. And, and to this day we are stunned like, God, why? It makes no sense. She had just moved to be near us. We were so excited. Our kids, uh, my, my nieces and nephews, were so happy to have their grandmother nearby. It makes no sense to me. And we cried out quite a lot. Why, God? Why? This makes no sense. We were convinced that maybe God would heal her and raise her up again. But he didn't. And at some point, we had to bow to the fact that God is sovereignly in control But God is all wise. God doesn't do anything that's not good. And to bow the knee and say, Lord, we don't understand. But we trust that you are a good God. We didn't need to put God on trial like Job tries to do in the book of Job. Rather, we had to submit and say, okay, God, you are in charge. And the truth is we cannot understand the reasons of a perfect, infinite, and uncreated God. See, you and I are like, we're like calculators. Remember when calculators first came out? This is going to blow the minds of teenagers. When I got my first calculator in seventh grade, I was so excited. You know, we'd gather around after math class. Hey, Jimmy, try two plus two. Two plus two, four. Four, it works. Isn't that amazing? This little machine, it was the cutting edge of technology. I think calculators back then probably cost $5,000, right? Now you can get one for a nickel. Um, Here's what we, you and I, we have the capacity because we're created beings, we have the mental capacity when it comes to divine things of a calculator. And God is a supercomputer. And when we say to God, I want to know why you allowed this in my life, our calculator brains are trying to download the operating system of a supercomputer. And what happens? It crashes. There are some things God allows in this world some great acts of natural disaster, some acts of evil human evil that we cannot understand in this lifetime. And if our insistence is, I've got to figure this out or I can't believe in God, we will never believe in God and we will never understand it anyways. See, the Christian answer is, I have to accept by faith that I have an eternal, divine, infinite God who is caring for me, who will take care of these things even if I can't understand them. Because with man's limited understanding, this is a little bit further down the page, with man's limited understanding, I cannot possibly know whether or not God has good reasons. Take the two-year-old whose parents make her eat broccoli. Is there any way to explain to that two-year-old the importance of nutrition and all the, all the nutrients in broccoli? No, all she knows is she has to eat it, and she thinks her parents are cruel. Or the teenager who has her cell phone taken away and not allowed to stay out till two in the morning when she's 13. No concept of the reasons, right? But the parents know this is what's good. And at some point, we have to acknowledge that God may have reasons. I don't know or I don't understand, but he is a good God. Here's something else we need to realize is that God grieves over suffering. God is not some distant God who who just Um, dispassionately says, here's your lot in life, take it, dry those tears, I don't want to hear it. No, we're told, we're shown in the scripture. Jesus wept over the friend he was about to raise from the dead. If that's not a loving, caring God, I don't know who is. We are told that in Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who doesn't understand what it's like. We have a high priest who understands everything, every temptation, every sorrow, every limitation. Jesus says... Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is light, and my burden is easy. Come unto me, all you who are laboring heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, we do have a God who grieves over suffering, who grieves over what this world has become. And the truth is, and when I talk to unbelievers who are wrestling with this issue, I let them know, whatever you're going through right now, I sympathize. It sounds terrible. I'm so sorry you're doing the enduring this, but here's the truth. God has made sure that you will never experience the greatest suffering because your greatest suffering would be eternal separation from God in hell if you reject Christ. And God has made a way. And the way he had to do that was to give his son to die for our sins, the innocent, perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled God's law. Perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness and then died on the cross and endured on the cross all of God's wrath against my sin and against your sin upon himself so that we wouldn't have to endure that. You, know that. you know what that does? That makes me realize that whatever suffering I experience in this life pales in comparison and it is temporary. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. This light and momentary affliction that you and I are experiencing. The physical suffering, the loss of ones that we love, the, the, the loss of rejection or lost love, the, the struggling every day for finances. It's light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that's awaiting for us. 12 years ago, right, uh, right before my mom died, I went in for a, a normal cholesterol check as I was in my mid-30s, and I said, I, someone told me I should be concerned about that. I went and had my cholesterol checked, and they came back, and they said, you have something seriously wrong with your kidneys. I was like, I have no symptoms. Six months of testing determined I needed a kidney transplant. I was still young. I was still healthy, still good-looking, still had more hair, you know, all those things. I thought, this can't be. And over the space of about five years, I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And finally, God provided seven years ago a kidney transplant. My older sister's husband gave me his kidney. And all that time I was going through that suffering where at the end of the day, I had to go take a two-hour nap just to get through the evening. I couldn't even climb a flight of stairs without feeling totally exhausted. Sometimes I tended towards self-pity. Like, why me, God? Why now? Why going through all this stuff? And yet one thing that assured me, one thing that I could rest in was the fact that Christ had suffered the greatest suffering at all so that this would not be my eternal lot. This would not be the worst thing I would ever go through because Christ has taken care of that for me. So here's some more Christian answers to that issue of evil and suffering. First of all, God hates evil and has nothing to do with it. God's not the source of evil, but God sovereignly engineers all things that happen in this world, including suffering, so that if you're suffering, it's not because God has been negligent, not because God um, doesn't care, but God is doing that in your life for for a purpose. Secondly, evil is the enemy of God and all he has made. This is not, the world is not the way God intended it to be, but this world came under a curse because of sin. And yet God sovereignly controls everything that happens. Nothing happens. No act of human evil, no act of physical suffering or natural disaster happens outside his control. And here's another thing. Non-Christian views tend to minimize evil. They tend to say things are not that bad in the world. They minimize the fact that there's more than two million people today in human trafficking. They minimize the fact that Uh, Since the passing of Roe v. Wade in the United States, more than 50 million babies have been aborted. And around the world, I think it's in China, there's something like 50 million a year. Great acts of human evil, human trafficking, genocide, all these great things. My skeptic friend says the world's getting better because we're all empathetic and we're growing in empathy and pretty soon we'll be living in this great nirvana where everyone cares for one another. I say, where have you been living lately? Under a rock? This world is in terrible, terrible shape. Only the Christian takes this very seriously. And therefore, we have a message to give those who are struggling with the existence of God. Notice finally then that God ultimately overcame evil by the death of his son. We know because of what the Bible says that this world will not be conquered by evil, that in the end, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire that we enter an eternal state where there's no more suffering, no more tears. And the truth is, when you have uh, someone struggling with this, I often tell them, you have two choices. You can either submit to a sovereign God who's designed this and allowed this in your life, in which case it has meaning, or we live in a world without God, in which case what you've gone through, what you've lost, has no meaning whatsoever. It's just the way the world works. It's just natural selection at work. It's just the cruelty of the world. And those are your two choices. I found this to be a powerful answer for unbelievers who are wrestling with this. Because as Christians, we have a loving, all-powerful God who has planned our lives from before the foundation of the world. He has allowed suffering into our lives, into this world for a reason. and He will bring it to a conclusion. If there is no God, there's no meaning in suffering. But if there is a God... And everything that happens in this world is for a purpose. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we're so thankful for these powerful answers that you have given to us in your word. That they satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. That they allow us to face the difficulty and to address the evil that we see in this world because you have not left us without an answer. You've not left us floundering around victims of the way nature works. We rejoice today in the reality that you are sovereignly in control of all things, that you work all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I pray for each believer in this room that we would boldly share this message with those who don't know you so that they might find purpose and meaning in their suffering. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand. Let's continue.